Well, after the last service, I had a man come up to me. And he said, Clayton, he knows me well. He said, Clayton, I know in between services, you're going to go try and look at what to cut. He said, don't cut anything. And uh, I said, okay, we'll, 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 we'll see about that. We'll, 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 we'll see what I can do here. We, we've, got a, we've got a lot to cover. So have you ever experienced something very tiny that had like huge, incredible results? Like, like something tiny that, that had a tremendous effect or a, a, a tremendous impact, like, like something tiny maybe that, that caused a very big problem. Like if you wear contacts, maybe you've got a, a scratch in your contact, a tiny, almost invisible, insignificant thing. But if it gets a scratch, right, or, or if that West Texas wind blows some dust in your eye, it has a dramatic effect, right? Your life is ruined, right? In that moment, there, there's nothing else you can do until you take care of that like tiny, insignificant little thing. Like, have you ever hit your pinky toe on something? It'll cause you to say some bad words, right? Parents, you step on a Lego, right? You step on a Lego barefooted, you're gonna be saying some bad words, right? It's a tiny little insignificant thing, but it has tremendous like impact and results. If you've ever gotten a splinter, right? You get a little tiny splinter in your hand, in your finger, in your foot, whatever. It just ruins your day until you get that tiny little splinter out. Well, Jesus would say that the kingdom of God is like this small, insignificant thing that has large results. It causes large impact. And at the same time, Jesus would say about the kingdom of God, it doesn't work at all like the kingdoms of this world. It doesn't look like the kingdoms. It doesn't operate the king, like the kingdoms of this world. And so today, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say in Luke chapter 13 about the kingdom of God. If you got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 13. Uh, open up our app, the City Church Lubbock. You can download it in your app store and uh, click message notes, and you can follow along with the message there. All the verses, the points, um, everything will be there in our app under our message notes. We're preaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, and we're asking you to join us in our study of Luke and here in our city groups as they break down these verses this week and talk about them. In our daily devotionals, Monday through Friday, uh, we'll cover these same verses and through your family gathering at a meal at a table. We're inviting you to study the gospel of Luke together with your family using the table talk. That's a Bible study resource for families under the Bible study tab on our app. We're preaching verse by verse through the scripture here because we just believe that produces healthier, deeper, more effective, more faithful, more steadfast, more generous disciples. That it's going to produce richer marriages. It's going to produce kids that grow up knowing what they believe and why they believe it. We preach the Bible, the, 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 the gospel of Luke right now specifically, verse by verse because we wants you to know the full counsel of God's word for a lot of reasons. One, we said this last week and we said this in our study of Daniel, our verse by verse study of Daniel a couple of years ago, that the spirit of Babylon, this demonic satanic spirit that we see all throughout our culture is trying to capture you, your kids, your grandkids, capture, retrain and reeducate in the ways and in the spirit of Babylon. 
We, we, we teach the scripture verse by verse so that you're going to know the full counsel of God's word because there's false teachers and false teaching and false doctrine out there. And listen, the Christian industrial machine in our country has no problem selling those books and that garbage in Christian book school stores and, and profiting off of you buying false teaching and false doctrine. And the only way you're going to know the truth from error is if you've been studying the Bible verse by verse, getting the full counsel of God's word. We, 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 we preach this way, and this is such an emphasis in our church because you're going to get punched in the face, sucker punched in the, sucker punched in the face by suffering. You're going to get that phone call. You're going to get that report, right? And let's be honest, when, when the day of suffering comes, it can, it can rock our faith. It can disillusion us. We start thinking that maybe God doesn't love us. God doesn't see us. But if our faith is weak because we've, we've been on a weak diet, then our enemy is going to take you out in the day of suffering. But if our, our faith is strong and, and, and deep and rooted in the full counsel of the word of God, then maybe we can be disciples of Jesus that are ready for the day of suffering. But, but not only suffering for the day of persecution. Listen, the, the, the church's experience in our country is a blip on the radar of church history. And, and, and really, it's a blip on the radar in the world today. And, and that, that blip on the radar will most certainly come to an end. And so we need biblically literate, spirit-filled, faith-filled, passionate disciples of Jesus, not only for the age that we're in, but for the age to come when maybe that rejection and reviling in our country right now actually begins to turn, to turn into persecution. And a pastor I follow several weeks ago said this. He posted this. Play the long, piece of pastors, churches, play the long game. Don't go for something cheap and frail. Go for something deep and beautiful and enduring. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're seeking as we study the scripture verse by verse and get the full counsel of the word of God. So would you stand in honor of the word of the Lord? We're in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 18. And as you stand, I want to remind you that our Lord and Savior Jesus, who proved that he was God by rising from the grave, said that we would always have his words. He said, you'll always have my word. My words will never pass away. So our faith, our trust in this being God's word to us is in Jesus, who promised us that we would always have his words and his words would never pass pass away. So we, we believe this is the word of God. We trust it and we submit ourselves underneath it as the word of God. So Luke chapter 13, verse 18 says this, then Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? How, how, how can I illustrate it? It's like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree and the birds make nest in its branches. He also asked, what is the kingdom of God like? It's like this yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he went, always pressing on towards Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? And he replied, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter but will fail. And when the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, but, but we ate and we drank with you and, and, and we heard you teaching in our streets. And the Lord will reply, I, I tell you, 
I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you will be thrown out. And people will come from all over the world, from the east and the west, the north and the south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And some who are the greatest right now will be least important then. And at that time, some Pharisees said to him, get, get away from here if you want to live. This, this message is going to get you killed. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. And Jesus replied, you go tell that fox that I'm going to keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And the third day, I will accomplish my purpose. Yes, today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must proceed on my way. For it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often... I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and you will never see me again until that day when you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You can be seated. The, the, the nation of Israel on, on, on the whole is expecting the arrival of the Messiah to bring a physical, tangible kingdom that's going to bring revolt. It's going to be bring a rebellion specifically against the, the Roman Empire, their, their, their overlords, right? It's going to bring power. It's going to bring position. It's, there's going to be this visible kind of manifestation of the kingdom that rules and, and brings wealth and position to them and suppresses their enemies. And Jesus is here saying he's their Messiah and he's feeding the poor and healing people and preaching and dying, right? I mean, this is why Judas got disillusioned, right? He's expecting this visible, powerful kingdom that's going to suppress their enemies and provide power and position and wealth for the nation of Israel. And it was really confusing when they try to make Jesus king and Jesus rejects this desire, right? You remember this? They're, they're so overwhelmed and excited about Jesus and him being the Messiah and the, the kingdom of God is, is here and they try to make him king. And what does Jesus do? He, he walks away from it. He, he denies that, that power. He, he denies that position. And so this is confusing to them. They're not getting it. And the reason they're not getting it is that Jesus' kingdom that he's preaching seems insignificant. It seems too small for, for what they had in their minds, for the expectations they had. And so Jesus, knowing their hearts and their responses and what they're looking for, he, he says, well, well, what is the kingdom of God like? To, to what can I compare it? Jesus would say elsewhere that my, my kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world. It doesn't operate like the kingdoms of this world. And so he, he's, he's teaching them here what, what his kingdom looks like and how it operates. You see, there's this already but not yet dynamic to the kingdom of God. That's what theologians call it. Already but not yet. There's this already aspect to the kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is among you. It's here. It's arrived. But we aren't experiencing the fullness of the kingdom of God yet. Like there's some dynamics 
about the kingdom of God that aren't true right now, but will be true about the kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness, when Jesus returns and reigns here on earth as king. So there's this already but not yet tension to the kingdom of God. Things that are somewhat true now that are going to be true in their fullness later. Things that we kind of taste, a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the kingdom right now that, that we'll experience in its fullness one day when Jesus returns. It's this tension between the kingdom's modest beginning and its glorious final state. I'm going to say that again. We, we see in Jesus' teaching about the kingdom, the tension between the kingdom of God's modest beginning and its glorious final state. So, so this is what Jesus is talking to us about today. He's talking to us about the tension in the kingdom of God. There, there's this tension in the kingdom of God already, but not yet. And so we're going to see some of the dynamics at play here in what Jesus has to say about this already but not yet kingdom. Number one, number one, the kingdom of God, it appears insignificant, but, but it's really significant. Like, like it has the appearance from the outside of being insignificant, but it has significant results, right? And significant impact. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And the seed, the mustard seed, was the smallest known seed to Jesus' audience. And, and then he talks about this, this pinch of yeast, just a pinch of yeast that, that is worked into the dough, right? And, and so it's this insignificant thing from the outside by the appearance of things, but it ends up having significant results and impact. The, the Jews were expecting the kingdom of God to come with this apocalyptic power to, to bring God's judgment on all of evil. And make no mistake, that day is coming. When, when Jesus returns, when he returns, it's going to be apocalyptic power putting down his enemies and reigning on a throne in a physical, visible kingdom and throne here on earth. That, that day is coming. But not yet. But not yet. So there's this already, but, but not yet. And, and, and so Jesus' is teaching here is that the kingdom will arrive in this insignificant way. And it's shocking. It, it's, it's surprising that, that it's not going to be mighty or large initially, but that it's going to have like the yeast working its way through the dough and causing the dough to rise or, or the seed, this little tiny insignificant seed, turning into this tree where birds are going to come and rest. It's insignificant, but, but significant. And, and it's, it's amazing to watch what Jesus said come to fruition. Like, like, let me give you a picture of the first couple hundred years of the early church. At the ascension of Jesus, when Jesus left earth to go to heaven, there's about 500 believers in Jesus or followers of Jesus at this point. After Pentecost, Acts chapter two, Holy Spirit's poured out, Peter preaches, right? At that point, there's about 3,000 followers of Jesus. Well, persecution ends up breaking out, Acts chapter eight. They're, they're, the followers of Jesus are spread all out through, through, through Judea. They leave Jerusalem, they go to Judea and Samaria, right? And, and, and so at this point, the Roman empire is about 60 million people. Well, 
by 100 AD, it's believed there's about 7,500 Christians in the Roman Empire. By 100 AD, 80 years later, there's about 108,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. By 250 AD, it's estimated that there are 1.1 million followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire. By 300 AD, 50 years later, it's estimated that there are 6 million followers of Jesus. By 312 AD, there are estimated 9 million followers of Jesus. 312. About 38 years later, 350 AD, there are about 31.7 million Christians in the Roman Empire, making up about 52% of the entire population in the Roman Empire. That's, that's a little bit of yeast that begins to work its way through the dough, right? That, that's the mustard seed that, that seems insignificant, right? But it, it's, it's almost unnoticeable now, but... but there's this force, this is like this, this dynamic here of this insignificant and the, the unnoticeable, right, becoming very noticeable and, and very dynamic in its influence. It's unnoticeable now, but will be imposing in its fullness. But, but, but not only that, Jesus would say, in the kingdom of God, the least are going to be great and the great are going to be the least. Like, like the insignificant people that seemingly are going to be very significant in the kingdom of God. And those who seem or appear to be significant on the outside in the kingdom are going to be insignificant. Like, like specifically, there's these Pharisees that Jesus continues to combat and these teachers of the law, they have positions of great importance they view themselves as very significant and very important in the kingdom of God. They're, 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 they're super religious, but, but Jesus is saying, you're going to be insignificant in the kingdom of God. But these repentant sinners and fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors are going to be significant in this kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Je Jesus is going to call those to follow him, these sinners to, to follow him and the very irreligious, sinful, insignificant people will be great in the kingdom of God. So, so there's this insignificant but significant dynamic here at work in, in, in the kingdom of God. Secondly, here's how the kingdom works. The, the kingdom works inside out, not outside in. It's inside out, not outside in. Like Jesus gives us the example of this leaven, this yeast that spreads internally through the dough until the whole lump is leavened. And then, and then dough rises, right? That there's this inside out transformation that's happening. Not, not, not outside pressure or conformity. No, there, there's this internal transformation that's happening in the dough as the yeast begins to work its way through. Same thing with the seed growing into a tree. There's this internal transformation and growth that's happening there in the seed that sprouts, that grows into a, 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 a tiny tree, that grows into this big, large tree. There's an internal transformation here, revealing 
that the kingdom of God is going to grow through internal transformation, not outside pressure and conformity. You got to catch this. That this is how the kingdom of God spreads and grows in you and from one person to the next. This is how, this is how it spreads. It's an internal transformation. Paul would say in Romans 7, we no longer serve God in the old way of the written code. Not this outside pressure, not, not conformity to morality. No, now in the new covenant, Paul would say in Romans chapter seven, we serve God in the new way of the spirit. It's the new way of the spirit where the spirit of God transforms you from the inside out. There's this inside out nature to the kingdom of God, not not outside in. Third, the kingdom of God is invisible, but it's visible all at the same time. It's, it's something that's happening invisibly that, that produces visible results. Jesus would say, it's just a, a pinch of yeast that, that works its way through the whole dough. And you don't see the immediate results. Like you, it, It's hard to even see what's happening there as it's working its way through the dough. You don't see the beginning of the work of the seed right under the ground. It's, it's hard to actually see what's happening in the growth of a tree unless you get like a, today, like a microscope and you really begin to examine like what's going on inside in the cell, right? There's something happening inside the seed, seed inside the tree. It's hard to see, but there's something invisible that's happening there that we can't see with the natural eye that's producing visible, tangible Results. This is the way the, the kingdom of God works. It spreads in the transformation of hearts and minds. And yet one day in the fullness of the kingdom, there will be this visible, tangible kingdom where Jesus rules on a throne that you can see and touch when Jesus returns and he rules over his kingdom here on earth. But, but until that day, until the day of the, the fullness of the kingdom already, but not yet, right? Until that day when there's very visible, manifest presence of the kingdom of God here on earth, that the kingdom is this invisible thing to a degree that, that spreads and it produces visible results in us and together as a church family because we, we gather together and we love Jesus together and we worship together and we serve one another, we minister to one another, right? So, so there's this invisible thing that's happening in our hearts and minds, but it produces visible, tangible results until the day when the kingdom of God is visible and tangible and that day is coming. When Jesus returns and he rules in a visible, tangible kingdom. Next, the kingdom of God is about transformation, not confirmation. We talked about this a little bit a second ago. The kingdom of God is about transformation, not confirmation. You see, Jesus talks about these people who, who think they deserve to enter the kingdom of God, but they won't receive it. They won't be allowed to enter. And, and yet there are those that realize that they don't deserve it. And, and the ones who realize they don't deserve it, they'll be the ones that will actually be led into the kingdom. Jesus would say these people who think they deserve it will, will say things like, we ate with you, we, we, we drank with you, we, we, we heard you preaching in the streets. 
And Jesus would say, you're just casual observers. Like you observed me, but you didn't really know me. You you might've listened to me. You might've even liked what you heard. You might've been a fan, but you were just a casual observer. You just kind of conformed to some sort of morality, but, but, but you didn't really know me. You didn't have a relationship with me. You conformed, but you weren't transformed. See, Jesus is saying, being around me won't do. Knowing about me isn't going to cut it. Jesus says of those that do not enter, they, they think they deserve it because they were around Jesus and they heard Jesus, and, and Jesus says, no, you, you, can't, you can't enter. You're going to be left out because you didn't know me, and I didn't know you. There, there was no relationship there. You, you may have been conformed, but you haven't been transformed. You see, many people have been exposed to and pursued Christian morality. A lot of us grew up in that. We, we thought being a Christian was not saying the right things, right? I'm not going to say the no-no words, and I'm going to go to church, right? And I'm going to try to do the right things. And, and Christianity to a lot of us growing up was, hey, i got to do better and try harder. And if I do better and I try harder, then maybe God will let me into heaven. Uh, maybe I can please God if I just do better and I try harder. And, and Jesus is clearly saying here, hey, moral conformity isn't going to get you into the kingdom of God. It's internal transformation. Many pursue Christian conformity and are casual observers. Jesus is saying many people are in this boat. Very few have actually been transformed by the gospel. And so so that begs the question, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to be transformed by the gospel? What what is this fruit of transformation? Well, well, Paul would say in Romans 12, uh, don't be, remember, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. So, So don't, even to the pattern of this world, we don't conform to any law or set of principles Paul would say, don't don't conform to the pattern in this world, but be, you remember that word? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul Paul would say in the the new covenant, you you, you know if you've internally transformed by the the power of the gospel, if you've received the, the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, and Paul would say you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. But the Holy Spirit changes the way that you think. Like, you you didn't care about God's word and his ways, but, but now as a follower of Jesus, you've received the Holy Spirit. And now you hate your sin and you pursue holiness and you pursue pur- purity. Not to be right with God, no, but because you are right with God, because you're a child of God. You, you pursue righteousness, you pursue purity because the Holy Spirit's transformed your mind. It's transformed your heart. You, you, you didn't want to gather together and sing and pray and listen to me Babylon, you know, before, but, but now as a follower of Jesus, you've received the Holy Spirit. You, you love gathering together with your church family and praying and worshiping and, and, and hearing the word and, and studying the word. Like, like this is a desire of your heart and mind. Now you think differently. You've been transformed, but the old is gone at some point And there was a new that came. 
And, and there was a new way of thinking, and, and, and you loved different things that you didn't love before. Now, now you didn't care about praying, but, but now you love meeting with God and hearing from God and crying out to God. Now you, you serve Jesus, and you want other people to know about Jesus. That, that's the, the fruit of internal transformation. And if you're like, hey, man, I'm, I'm not there. Like, like I, don't, I don't really see that like, passion and, and, and desire in my life. Then, then, then maybe, just maybe, you, you've been conforming to Christian morality. You've been a casual observer, but you haven't been transformed by the inner working of the, the gospel of the Holy Spirit that, that, that changes you from the inside out. You see, if you have, then the Holy Spirit, even right now, is like pumping and beating and saying, yes. Romans 7, I'm going to serve God in the new way of the Holy Spirit. It's freedom. There's joy there. I'm a child of God. Like, like you're excited about this. Because there's been a renewing of your mind. Maybe these things used to bore you to tears, but, but now you're, you're excited about the spiritual things of heaven. That, that's an internal transformation that's happened there. And if you've been conforming to Christian morality, trying to do better and try harder, and you've just been kind of a fan, just kind of listening, that, then that's probably not there in you. And it's because you're, you're not really a follower of Jesus. You've just been kind of lying to yourself and tricking yourself into thinking you're something you're not. Which leads to the last dynamic of the kingdom of God, and it's probably the most controversial. It's inclusive, but at the exact same time, it's, it's exclusive. It's inclusive and it's exclusive. exclusive. What, what do we mean by that? Well, well Jesus would say this, that, that few get in. But they're going to come from all over the place, right? But very few are going to enter through the narrow door. They're going to enter through me. There's only one door. It's very narrow. And, and there's only one door to the kingdom of God. And Jesus say, it's me. There, there's only one way to the kingdom of God. And it's through me. And so very few are going to enter it. But then Jesus says this, we're coming from everywhere. They're coming from the north, the south, the east, the west, right? They're coming from everywhere, from the, the least to the great, Right? They're coming from everywhere. All kinds of people are going to get in. They're going to come from everywhere. This is the inclusive heart of God, but there's the exclusive gospel and way into the kingdom. So it's inclusive, but it's exclusive at the exact same time. You see, this relationship with God, this knowledge of God was never supposed to end with the nation of Israel. I mean, go back to Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham and begins this people that he calls his chosen nation, his royal priesthood, right? And this begins with Abraham. And with the very beginning, the very foundation of the nation, nation of Israel is in God's covenant with Abraham. And here's, remember what he said to Abraham? I'm gonna bless you and make your name great. You're gonna have all these descendants that this nation is going to come from you. Why? Why am I gonna bless you? Why am I gonna make, make your name great? Why are you gonna have this, this incredible nation that's gonna follow from your descendants? Why? So that the peoples of the earth might be blessed through you. God blesses Abraham. He chooses Israel as a nation to know him and to worship him so that, Genesis 12, so that you might be a blessing to 
the nations of the earth. This, is, this was God's plan from the beginning with the choosing of the nation of Israel. It wasn't supposed to end with him. I heard this picture this past week, and, and, and I love the, the, the image here, but that what God was doing with Israel was forming a beachhead to bring restoration to the nations. And I love that picture because a, a, a beachhead from a military standpoint, right? It's like this home base, right? It, it, it's, it's a base from which you take over and you fight and you advance. And, and, and what God was doing with Israel was forming a beachhead by which he would bless the nations with the knowledge of the one true God. That this blessing was never supposed to end with them. And so in this gathering of people from the north, the south, the east, the west, into the kingdom of God. It reflects this inclusive heart of God to draw all people to himself. And yet at the exact same time, there's an exclusive way in. Jesus says there's a narrow door to the kingdom of God. He would say elsewhere, narrow is the road that leads to life and very few find it. But broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many are on that road to destruction where Jesus here says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about the reality and the pain of hell. This is Jesus. Inclusive heart, but exclusive message and way into the kingdom. This is Jesus speaking here. This isn't me, right? This is Jesus. It's a narrow door. It's a narrow gate into the kingdom. And, and what Jesus is saying is, I'm that door. I'm that gate. There's only one way into the kingdom, Jesus says. And you can enter through me or you're going to be left out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is, is telling us, hey, hey, there's one way to the Father, John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to heaven except through me. I'm the narrow door. I'm the narrow gate. And if you don't come through me, then we get the, the judgment, right? Jesus is saying there's going to be weeping and there's going to be gnashing of teeth for those who don't get into the kingdom. He's talking about the realities of hell. So, so yes, Jesus is patient and kind and merciful and helpful and, and inclusive. But, but then at the exact same time, we see the righteousness and justice of God that that sin and evil and wickedness will be punished forever. And that God has made this way of escape from his own wrath, from his own justice, through this narrow door, Jesus, into his kingdom, where you can be saved, where you can be rescued from the wrath of God for sin. So Jesus says there's, a time coming when it's going to be too late to enter through that door, though. Right? He says that the door is going to be locked. And there's a day coming when it will be too late. And we don't know when that day is. Today could be your day when it's too late. You, you could die. Jesus could return at any moment. We don't know when that day is going to be. But Jesus is saying there is a day coming when it will be too late. And the door will be Locked and, and specifically here, he's lamenting over the nation of Israel and their rejection of him as their Messiah, realizing that the time for them is, is coming to an end, that the door is shutting on Israel for now. And he even prophesies that their house, he's referring to the temple, is going to be abandoned, which would happen in 70 AD, not long after Jesus would ascend to heaven. 
Rome would come in, sack Jerusalem, destroy the temple. But at the same time, Jesus prophesies that there's a time when many from the nation of Israel, that there will be this mass repentance of the Jews to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. He says, hey, you're not going to see me again until the day when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a day coming when Jesus is the, the door shutting for now because there's been overall a rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, but there's a day coming when Israel will return to their Messiah. In Romans 11, Paul prophesies the same exact thing, that there's a day coming when Israel will be saved, when they will repent and turn to Jesus as their Savior and as their Messiah. Well, the response of the Pharisees to this inclusive gospel, inclusive heart, exclusive gospel. Here's their response. That message, that, that kind of came, that's, that's revolutionary. That's going to get you killed. That's going to get you killed. And so you see what they tell Jesus? You better get out of here. You better get out of here because what you're saying is going to get you killed. This, this inclusive heart with this exclusive gospel, that's going to get you killed. And that's how you know you've heard the full counsel of the word of God because you're like, get out of here with that. Like, I, I don't like that. For one reason or another, uh, that doesn't really sound that good. That doesn't really sound that appealing to me. They get the full counsel of the word of God and they're like, get out of here with that. That's going to get you killed. And here's why. First of all, religious people don't like this. Religious people don't like it. They, they want control, they want force, they, they want power. They refuse to repent of their own self-righteousness. They, they refuse to repent of, of their rejection of Jesus' inclusive heart. But then at the exact same time, the irreligious don't like this either. They refuse to repent of their self-centeredness. They, they reject this narrow, exclusive door into the kingdom of God. And so that's why this message like makes everybody mad that they all want to kill Jesus, both the religious and the irreligious. This is what got Jesus crucified on that cross. This inclusive heart that the religious rejected, but this exclusive gospel that the irreligious rejected. It's what got Jesus killed. But in all of this, you cannot miss the heart of God. In all these like already but not yet dynamics of the kingdom of God, Jesus is going to reveal powerfully with this picture the heart of God. And, and, and you can't miss it. Jesus says, oh, how I've longed to gather you to myself. Like, like a hen would gather her chicks and spread out her wings to protect her little chicks. It's this, it's this super compassionate, loving, protective heart of God. And, and, and you can't miss it because behind all of this, you, you've got to catch the heart of God. Our culture sees God's commands, his word, his ways as repressive, like a, like a prison. And Jesus is giving us this image of a, of a hen and her chicks, like revealing the, the heart of God is like the, the best mother, the, the best father you could ever possibly imagine. And I, I, I say it like that because I know not all of us have had that, but, but Jesus gives us this picture of this incredible, like the best mother, the best father you could ever possibly imagine. 
This past week, my son Coben, he's 13, he's in seventh grade, and he's been wrestling for the past few months for his school. And uh, he was in the city championship this past week, and he, because of Christmas, and eating a lot and not working out a lot, you know, he, he started gaining some weight and he got outside of his weight class. And so he was working hard. I mean, he's, he's running, he's working out at school. He, he's at night sitting by a fire at our house with a, a, a sauna suit on, like, like trying to lose weight. He slept in his sauna suit. I don't even know if that's like healthy or not. It could be dangerous, but he's sleeping in his sauna suit. Like he's doing everything that he can to, to, to lose weight like a week in advance so that he can be put in the bracket. He was undefeated in his weight class. And so he, he wants to, to be in the bracket, like, right? He wants to compete for the city championships. And so, so he loses the weight. He makes weight to be put into the bracket. Well, then he's got to weigh in days later. He's like, eating super healthy, uh, 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 drinking like water, but then, you, you know, trying to then lose the water weight through sweating, right? Like, so, so he's doing all this work. He weighs in again the, the day of the, the preliminaries and, and he makes his weight. And so he wrestles on Tuesday. He, he wins two times. It puts him in the city championship for the next day. So, so he, he's shown up to weigh in and he's 106.4. You gotta be 106. That's the max. And so his coach tells him, hey, you got to go to the bathroom. So he goes, he tries to go to the bathroom and he's in there and he's, he, he finally goes to the bathroom. He comes back and he weighs 106 even. And so he gets to, he gets to wrestle for the city championship. So, so he wrestles in the city championship. We're there Wednesday night, like our family, friends, you know, people were, we're all there. We're, we're, we're cheering him on and uh, he, he's, he's wrestling and he's, he's been undefeated in his weight class up to this point. And he's, we're, we're yelling for him and, and wrestling's like a brand new world for me. You know, like I get baseball and, and basketball and football and try, like I, I get all of that. Like I'm even a little bit more, I'm learning a little bit more about gymnastics because my daughter Nixon's in gymnastics, but wrestling, like I don't know this world. I don't know what you say. So I'm like, go Coben, pin him, get him. So, you know, I don't know what to say. You know, I'm just like, well, you're just, you're just yelling for him. And, and, and he wins. He won the city championship for his weight class in, in, in seventh grade. And so we're yelling, we're cheering for him. We're going crazy. They hold up his hand, you know, that he, that he wins. And I, I start crying and Darby looks at me and she's like, are you crying? I'm like, no, I'm not crying. But I was crying. Um, because, because I was, I was so proud like, I was so proud of him. He overcame so much. He worked so hard. Like, he, he did so well. I was so proud of him. Most parents understand. They get it. But then you understand this other side. That when your kids hurt, you hurt. And when your kids are suffering, Man, you suffer. And there's angst. And there's tears. When they're broken, you 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 break. I mean, nobody told me I was gonna have to relive the pain of dating all over again through my kids. I mean, I had enough heartbreak from Darby rejecting me all of like middle school and high school. But, but now I'm like, I'm having to live through it again, you know, with, with my kids and, and whether it's 
his fault or, or someone else's fault or, or whatever. Like you, you, you go through the pain of heartbreak like all over again with your kids and it, it, that's painful and it, it, it's painful when you see them screw up or make a wrong choice or make a wrong decision and, and, and you hurt. Why? Because you want your kids to conform to your, wall, your laws and your, no. You hurt because you want what's best for your kid. And I, I know it's hard to, to see God like that as, as this perfect father that celebrates you and, and takes pride in you. But, but then when you stumble or mess up or you, you go your own way, he hurts because he wants to gather you to himself to protect you to provide for you. It's this incredible, compassionate picture that Jesus entered the kingdom through me because I want to protect you. I want to provide for you. And that's the heart of God for you. Our culture's gotten it completely wrong. When they look at God, they look at his word, they look at his ways, they've gotten it completely wrong. They've missed the heart of God. You see, what God knows is that in your submission to his king and his kingdom, that it's in that submission to him and to his kingdom that you're going to experience your best, that, that, that you're going to know true freedom and joy it is found actually in submitting to the king and to his kingdom and to doing things his way. And this is the heart of God, to gather you to himself in his kingdom to protect you and to provide for you. And he proved it. He proved that this is his heart for you by dying for you on a cross to rescue you from the penalty of your sin to save you and to bring you into his kingdom that you might know true freedom and joy and the best love you could ever know. He proved it. G Jesus in all of this, did you catch it? Twice. He said, I've got to get to Jerusalem. I I I've got a purpose to accomplish. It was the cross where he would prove, where God would prove his love for you as the best father you could ever possibly imagine to gather you, to, to draw you to himself through the cross where, where your sin was paid for, where the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that it wouldn't have to pour it out on you and that he could rescue you, save you from your sin so that you might know him and enter into his kingdom and be set free. And no true joy, no true freedom. This is the joy and the blessing of the kingdom of God. And it's what God wants for you. It's God's best for you. So, so what does this mean for us? We got, we got to hurry. I'm, I'm way over my time. What, what, what does this mean for us as, as followers of Jesus and as a church? Number one, here's what it means for us. We, we've got to have kingdom values. We, we, we've got to adopt uh, kingdom values instead of power and position and wealth and riches and, and strength and skill and success and, and fame. We're going to value prayer and, and the word of God in, in our church family and in, in worshiping God together and in service and character and fruit of the spirit, faithfulness and glory. I mean, who cares about fame? when there's glory to be had that lasts forever. 
Instead of prioritizing laws to bring external conformity, we we prioritize discipleship, inside-out transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is sanctification. And and the hard thing about sanctification is that it often moves slower than we want it to, both in us and in others. And, And so this value of discipleship, internal transformation, it takes patience with ourselves It takes patience with others. It takes patience with our church family because we all get it wrong so often. And so it takes patience and grace with ourselves and with each other. But then secondly, what does this mean for us as disciples, as the church? It means adopting a kingdom vision. Kingdom vision, kingdom kingdom strategy. And here's what I mean by this. When Jesus is talking about the growth and the spread of the kingdom, what leader or government is he hoping in to bring all of this about? None. There's not one. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. Jesus says in these verses, we, we learned that the kingdom of God's not going to spread or grow through power and position in politics. Jesus would say, my, my kingdom's not of this world. That the kingdom of God is a kingdom that permeates all the kingdoms of the world. It, it's the city of God permeating all the cities of men. Governments don't make disciples. They can't and they never will. Stephen Wolfe in his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, says otherwise. He wrote this. If we're going to experience the great renewal, the resurgence of Christianity again, once again in our country, here's what he said. We must hope and pray for a God-like magistrate whom the people will look upon as a father or protectorate of the country, a man of dignity and greatness of soul who will lead a people to liberty, virtue, and godliness to greatness. We we should pray for God to raise up, he said, a Christian prince, a leader who would suppress the enemies of God and elevate his people, recover a worshiping people, restore masculine prominence in the land and a spirit of dominion, affirm and conserve his people in place, not permitting their dissolution or capture and inspire a love of one's Christian country. Wolf concludes this chapter in his book by urging the reader to pray that God would bring about through a Christian prince, a great renewal. Guys, this is idolatry. It is absolute 100% idolatry. This is the Antichrist. I don't even think he realizes it. This is Nazi Germany. This is is idolatry. And this was the confusion. This is what Israel was wanting from Jesus. Kevin DeYoung, in a rebuke of this book, Pastor and seminary professor said this, Christ's chief concern in this age is with the church. While many institutions contribute to earthly life and human flourishing, Jesus didn't promise to build any institution other than the church. Dustin Binge said this, the aim of Jesus 
is not to reform manners of society or even government, but to change the hearts of sinners like you and me. This is Jesus's aim. This is what the kingdom of God is doing, changing hearts of sinners like you and me. And so while we don't punt our role in politics, we don't overplay our hand either. We still advocate for just laws that provide and protect the marginalized in our country. But at the same time, we don't, we don't overplay our hand here. This isn't where our hope is at. Kevin DeYoung would go on to say in his rebuke of this book, but if we must say something about a strategy for national renewal, it's multifaceted and rather ordinary. We need confidence, courage, and Christ-likeness. We need faithful churches, gospel preaching, and prayer. We, we should contend for the faith. We, we, we should disciple our churches and catechize our kids. That's disciple our kids in the faith. It's speaking the truth and offering grace. It's striving to grow in every fruit of the Spirit. It's asking that God would give us every virtue of grace. It's modeling an alternative culture as the city of God. And it's trying to be salt and light among the city of man. The way our country becomes more Christian is through regeneration. That's only possible through the gospel transforming someone's heart. That, that's what re regeneration is. And so DeYoung says our, our, our hope is not in a party, it's not in a leader. It's not in a godlike magistrate, a Christian prince. Our, our hope is in the gospel regenerating hearts. Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke in this passage said this, since the days of Constantine, the church has struggled with her identity by thinking a text like this is a call to exercise increasing power. But the way of discipleship, however, is the way of service and sacrifice. The church is not called to the sword or to power, but to service. Whenever the church has confused these two, it has disastrous results. To manifest the kingdom's presence is not to build buildings or even to pass laws, but to honor God with a quality of life that is directed powerfully in the transforming work of his spirit. If God's people have any priority, it should be the commitment to live, relate to others, and serve in a way that honors him. Here's the point. Here's the point of what we're talking about in, in, in kingdom vision, in kingdom strategy. Here's the point. The point is that Christendom is not the point of Christianity. Christendom isn't the point of Christianity, like where the church rules in place of the state or, or where the church rules over the state. That, that is not the point of Christianity. When Jesus returns in his fullness, he will rule from his throne in his kingdom over all the earth. But for now, the point of Christianity, the point of discipleship is not Christendom. It's not for the church to be in power over the state. And really, when you think about it, the church has never done well in power. We, we, we've never done well when we've been in power. It's always gone very badly. Conversely, the church has always thrived under persecution. So watch this. The church has prospered under persecution, not power. Which means this. The church doesn't need power to control hearts, outward pressure, conformity to law. We, 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 don't, we don't need any of that. We don't have to pursue that, at least not as a priority. No, 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 we preach. Here's our priority. We preach and pray for hearts to be changed. 
That's internal transformation. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Internal transformation, spreading from one person to the next. We preach and we pray so that hearts might be changed. So our kingdom vision, our kingdom strategy is to preach the gospel, it's to make disciples, it's to pray, it's to live as missionaries, it's to be ambassadors of the city of God among the cities of men. In 1978, there was a book written called The Upside Down Kingdom. And um, it was written to convey that the way the kingdom of God challenges the prevailing social orders, like how the values of the kingdom stand in an inverse relationship to the values of this world. Like what's highly valued at the top of one order ranks at the bottom of the other. That's why the kingdom of God, the, the gospel of our God is foolishness to believers. It's foolishness to the world. It's an upside down kingdom where leaders are servants, where neighbors and enemies are loved, where under the lordship of King Jesus, humility is exalted, where the first is last, where offenders are forgiven 70 times seven, where, where you kneel down to help a lady caught in adultery instead of picking up a stone, where you kneel down to, to help a half-dead stranger lying in a ditch, where in, sinners are invited to follow Jesus before they ever believe or behave, where you take up a cross, not a sword, where you lose your life to gain it. The way of Jesus is countercultural. It's upside down. It's inside out. It's a kingdom where meekness is power and where power is actually weakness and where suffering leads to glory. And so no matter the cost, no matter the circumstances we, we find ourselves in, our cry is thy kingdom come. On earth as it is in heaven until Heaven comes to earth. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word and how it challenges us, it transforms us, and it offers hope all at the same time. And God, I pray that, that in this moment, in these moments that we have, that your spirit would transform our hearts and minds from the inside out and, and give us a, a love for Jesus and a love for the kingdom of God. And right now, if you're here and maybe you've been trying to do better and try harder your way into the kingdom of God, you've been observing Jesus, maybe you've been trying to conform to Christian morality. Would you hear today Jesus saying, enter through the narrow gate, come to me, give your life to me so that you might be forgiven of your sin and made right with God. And if that's you, and you wanna give your life to Jesus for the first time today, jump on our app, fill out our connect form. Let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. Or come meet with one of our pastors after the service. We'd love to pray with you and celebrate that decision with you. God, we, we pray as a, a church family that we would be kingdom people with kingdom values and with kingdom vision. And that God, you would use us, the, this, the city of God that, that we make up together, would you use us as ambassadors of the city of God to permeate and, and, and to spread through the dough that, that is our culture, God, that, that you might use us as missionaries, as ambassadors 
of the city of God to, to permeate the, the cities of men. God, that we would be a kingdom church, a kingdom people that is used for your glory. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we worship?